Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host, and I am once again honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show, in alignment with my laptop lifestyle, is a from-the-field podcast, and we take you to those places where you have those mastermind chats, you have those moments of inspiration you weren't expecting, that give you those aha moments that drive you closer to being able to serve from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. And what do you hear in the background? You may hear a bird chirping like I hear right now. There may be a vehicle driving by on a distant road like I can hear right now. You could be sitting out in a cafe or a restaurant or a cigar shop or a coffee shop and hear a little bit of ambient conversation in the background. That occasionally shows up as well. Today, we are coming to you from my sumptuous high-tech studio on my balcony in beautiful, sunny Las Vegas, which will soon be the hottest city in the world based on time of year that we're doing this. And I am so thrilled to be having this conversation today about how to negotiate like a CEO. This is something that our listeners can't get enough of. They crave knowledge on negotiation, whether it's our corporate listeners who are negotiating for a raise, negotiating for funding for their projects, negotiating for more allocations for their department, whether it's our entrepreneurial guests who are or our get or listeners rather who are looking to close bigger deals, get bigger, better clients, and overall have great relationships with their own resource partners. Negotiation is key. We have somebody here who I have been wanting to have on the show for a while. I've been following him and I've been thinking one of these days we're going to get him on here. And today it's happening. His name is Jotham Stein. He is the principal of the law offices of Jotham S. Stein, PC. He comes to us with more than two decades of experience representing entrepreneurs and C-suite executives running myriad types of companies, board members, venture capitalists, private equity principals, investment bankers, as well as less senior employees of all size companies. Jotham Stein is also the author of a book called Executive Employment Law, Protecting Executives, Entrepreneurs, and Employees, which is a how-to guide for practitioners. And I'm very excited to be among those announcing his new book, which is called Negotiate Like a CEO, which is an engaging look at how all employees can protect themselves with lessons learned from top entrepreneurs and executives, and how you can too. Jotham Stein, come on in. The weather's fine. Great to be joining you on your balcony, Adam. Thanks for having me on your show. I wish you were sitting right next to me, especially since I just kind of rhymed there. Jotham Stein, come on in. The weather's fine. Uh, syllable syllables were out of alignment, but I did get the rhyme in there, which makes me an aspiring rapper of some sort. Now, I just read off your official bio. This is so impressive. 
I'm not sure I'm worthy to be in your presence and we're on my show. So what I'd like to do here, and we do this with everybody who joins us and graces us with their presence, is let's go beyond that bio a little bit and tell us a bit about your own journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Well, I, I'm a lawyer and I've been representing entrepreneurs and business creators for more than 25 years. And I fell into it. Uh, it was an accident. Um, essentially, when I, uh, I went to law school, I went to the big firm for a couple of years, left the big firm in Palo Alto, which is in Silicon Valley, yep. uh, which was at a great time to be there with a lot of business creation, still a great place to be. And uh, uh, one thing led to another. I wound up representing a lot of individuals uh, in their relationships with their companies, entrepreneurs, um, as they built their companies. And so 25 years later, um, I'm the, uh, I, I've represented so many and seen so many wonderful stories and so many um, not so wonderful stories that yeah. um, the business creators will want to protect themselves against. Yeah. So uh, you, so aside from that, what actually inspired you to create this new book, which I'm going to have to pick up a copy of, by the way. <laughs> well, I think you'll really enjoy the book. Uh, what, what inspired me to write it is two things. One is, we all spend so much time in uh, in employment and in creating companies, uh, and but so many people don't see the upsides, the downsides, don't know what the other side is thinking. Um, like somebody going into an entrepreneurial experience, building a company, maybe taking an investment, they don't know what to protect themselves against. So I thought, listen, with all this experience I have, I've seen so many different things. Uh, I can't say I've seen everything because every day I learn some some new crazy thing, but um, I wanted to bring that and help people um, because I can't tell you how many wonderful people out there, how many shrewd people out there, how many very knowledgeable people out there um, wind up getting taken advantage of. And over and over and over again, I see that with business creators, with entrepreneurs. And so I wanted a book that would help everybody because I have all this knowledge. Um, and the second reason I wrote the book is to have a good time. Um, yep. fun. And so I did that. So I underscore my, I underscore what I'm writing about nonfiction, that is how to protect yourself in employment, what to look out for. Same thing in entrepreneurship, what to look out for. Um, but I underscore that with 59 fictional stories that I, they're vignettes that underscore everything um, that I'm writing about. And that was a lot of fun to write. Yeah, I, in my own book, Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy, which the gist of it is how to achieve maximum results through minimalism in your business or your life. It contains, I think it's a little more than 59. It might actually be closer to 80. I can't remember. I don't have a copy of it in front of me, but they also are all fictional stories, many of which have a basis in things that have happened for me and for people I know in their real lives. Names change to protect the guilty, of course. And also a couple things that I found really memorable in speeches I've seen and presentations I've attended where I mix and match and adapted things. And what's been really, really hilarious over the years is how many people have read the book or have heard me tell stories about the book. And they said, hey, that's for my keynote. <laughs> really? I don't remember. I candidly don't. Or Oh, I see what you did there. I yeah, that's my story. It's like, yeah, it actually is. And I changed your gender and your name so nobody will ever know. Well, I had to do a little more than that. I actually created <laughs> it. I created it out of um, 
out of thin air, basically sitting at the Pete's Coffee. But they are repeat stories that happen over and over again, sort of like if you go to a movie uh, and you see a, an action movie or you see a romance, romantic comedy or you see a thriller, um, you know, those are the kinds of repeat stories that I see all the time in the entrepreneurial executive employment world. And so I created them, but I mixed them in with things out of my own life that I that I really enjoy. So for example, I might be talking about an entrepreneur, how to protect themselves. And I mix that in with a story about soccer, uh, which I play and I, which I used to play yeah. when I was too old. And, 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 and another story I mixed in with traveling, which I like to do. So, um, and try to make it really interesting for people, just like you did in your book. Um, your listeners, uh, uh, newbie entrepreneurs, or even old ones that want to protect themselves or business creators, or uh, anybody who's going into an employment relationship at any level um, could just read the 59 stories. And, you know, if they were really interested and they were, and it hit home, which I suggest many of them will um, either because they'll say, Hey, that happened to me or um, Hey, that happened to somebody I know. Then they'll go, then you can go and read all the, the uh, other parts of the book that tell you what to do uh, to protect yourself against what's in the story. Yeah. You know, uh, and it's, it's funny. Uh, among the many reasons why the Business Creators Radio Show is audio only, the number one is I just don't freaking feel like lugging a camera around, and I don't want to hold a media pose for up to an hour. It's just it's not happening. I don't want to. I want to relax, be comfortable, enjoy, and I want our guests to feel the same way. Furthermore, in our conversations with some of our most avid listeners and some research I've done, I've determined that our avatar listener tends to tune in while they're doing something else, which means even if there was a video for them to watch, they probably would not. So for all those reasons, and whether I made that up or not, it doesn't really matter. But one of the things that's really cool about it is since I don't have to sit up and pretend like I'm staring right at you and everything, I can do the raise the roof gesture when you say something that's really inspirational. And I can also uh, play around and I can type things. And among the things I was typing was going to your website and buying the Kindle copy of your book. I buy a lot of the books published by our guests. I'm an avid reader. And I got to tell you that uh, this is the fastest that I've ever been inspired to buy a book. Well, that's great to hear. And uh, if you really want to have a fun time and compare it to your stories, read the 59 stories. And then uh, I, I know with the experience that you have and probably everything you've seen out there, you'll read the rest of the book, the nonfiction part that tells you um, how to protect yourself, tells your listeners how to protect themselves and when they build a business, when they create a business. Um, and so I'm really happy you did that. It's uh, great to hear. And uh, I think you're going to have a, a really fun time reading those stories. They're, you know, they're three, four page stories each summer, one page, some are six pages, but um, and they're all different mediums. They have good, they have good titles, you know, like maybe I'll clean house. They cheat me, but I do. Okay. The, Dy the dynamo and the CFO, you know, powerless and uh, special projects, recipe for a dispute, all of those uh, things. And I think you're going to really enjoy uh, what I mixed them in with, um, um, you know, the, the stories of the sports or the stories of the travel um, or the stories of, of sitting by, you know, so like yourself sitting at a, you're not sitting at a pub, but people sitting at a pub having a conversation about what they're going to do with their company next, which, which does happen and, and can be great things for certain people at the company or certain people in business, uh, in entrepreneurship, it could be um, bad, bad, a bad result for, for others. All right. I wish I'd have known you 15 years ago. So let me 
just tell you something that happened to me. And I want to get your thoughts on what um, I could have, should have, would have done differently. If only I'd had Jotham Stein to say, yo, wait a minute, dude. All right. So here it is. Uh, I made a friend in business and we decided to do a joint venture together. I'm not going to explain the nature of what the joint venture is. Let's just say that it involved the two of us offering a specific service to the public where we would uh, do the projects jointly. So what happened is we basically agreed to do it over a handshake. And it was a relatively low ticket thing. And part of our backend agreement is this was kind of an entry-level offering. And then once the once we completed our initial product, the prospects we got were mutually fair game. So I could recruit them to be clients for my respective business, and they could recruit them to be respective clients for their respective business. To me, it wasn't a bad thing. But here's what I started to run into. Uh, this person was a friend of mine. So, you know, I would talk shop on a regular basis and I'd mentioned, Hey, I got this client that had nothing to do with our joint venture. And the, and this, my JV partner would ask, okay, so where's my cut? Like what? This is my clients. I got them. Yeah. But, but, but we're, but we're in a joint venture together and, and we share, no, we don't. And, uh, then I had to listen to all these arguments where because of similarities between this, that, and the other thing that he should have the option to jump in and get half the money and everything else. And I had to go through this round and round and round and round and round. Aside from the fact that I did on a handshake, what else should I have done? You should have had a clear agreement on day one. That's uh-huh. what the CEO would do. That's why I call my book Negotiate Like a CEO. You have a clear agreement on day one saying exactly what your rights are and what your friend's rights are um, in terms of when you build the company with respect to the customers and services you're providing. So if you had had agreement on day one that said, you don't get any part of my business and I don't get any part of your business, um, as an example, um, you would have protected yourself and not run into the problem that you face. face. And I, I might say... If I can talk about those stories, you should read the story Powerless uh, in in my book. And it's one I made up, but it happens over and over again. It's a repeat repeat experience I've seen in in, uh, my career. And what is that a story of? It's the two guys who were roommates. One of them stood up at the other's wedding. And the wrongdoer in that circumstance, which I've seen multiple times, the person who did the stabbing in the back, the person in your case who reached for the the joint venture, the the clients or customers or service providers that they're not entitled to because you did a handshake deal, that wrongdoer is the person who stood up at the wedding. And um, it's it's an example in this circumstance, it's it's a little different fact pattern, the fact pattern I created and the characters I created as they started a a new company in entrepreneurship, they took an investment. And at some point, the um, friend, the guy who stood up at the wedding, had an epiphany by looking into the mirror and figured he was a better CEO than his buddy, who actually put in more effort into the company and had more of the ideas and had been doing the company by himself. And so the wrongdoer then teams up with the venture capitalist in this in this story, stabs his his uh, uh, CEO and longtime college roommate friend in the back. And his rationalization, as many people rationalize, like I don't know who who your who your buddy is you went to business with that was rationalizing, but his rationalization in the story um, that I wrote, Powerless, is that he would do a better job growing this new company than his buddy who he stood up at the wedding with. And so therefore, even though he stabbed his buddy in the back, in his own mind, he was doing him a favor 
and his wife a favor because he was going to grow the company faster, meaning um, that the person who stood up at the wedding was a CEO who got stabbed in the back's equity would be worth more. So at the end of the day, the friend is telling himself, rationalizing that I'm going to make my friend, even though I'm stabbing in the back, richer at the end of the day. So me and the venture capital should force them out of the company. This happens a lot. This happens with uh-huh. family members starting um, small businesses. You go into business with a family member, you need to protect yourself and the family member up front right away so that if things go, don't go well down the road, um, you don't have exactly what happened to you. And, and I want to say that many times things go well. And, and, and there yeah. are people out there as the honest as the day is long. But the problem is that many things don't go well in business. And, and a business on day one isn't necessarily the business on day on day one year and one and then five years down the road. So yeah. at the outset, um, you protect yourself and you think like the, the, the CEO. Because one thing we know about CEOs, at least I know for more than 25 years, um, my clients anyway, what do they do when they go into a new company? Uh, if they have any leverage at all, uh, they get an employment agreement or an offer letter that is essentially a severance agreement up front. They're protecting themselves so they get fired down the road by the board of directors. And yeah. I call that a professional uh, prenuptial agreement. Yep. But CEOs do that across industries, across size companies. And so if they're, that's why I call the book Negotiate Like a CEO. Um, that's what all of your listeners should be doing that are, uh, if they have any leverage at all, they're going into business, they're creating a business just like yourself. Um, and so that's that's the mistake you made. And, and I, don't, I don't want to make you feel bad. No, uh, no, no. Um, what happened to you happens over and over again to very smart people, very shrewd people, people that are wonderful with other people. It happens all the time. And so um, part of the reason I wrote the book is uh, to get that message out and to help people so they don't have to go through the experience you did. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it wasn't actually all that big a deal in this case. I just simply backed the person down by saying, uh, no, we're not going to do that. Now, if they had tried to get all insistent with me, uh, I would have said, okay, do we have an agreement that says that you get a portion of all my business? Oh, wait, there is no agreement. Well, the problem... <laughs> yeah, and, and I know that I knew that your rejoinder that was going to start with the phrase, the problem is, so go right ahead. <laughs> so the problem is if your business, let's just make believe you really hit it. And uh, in, the, in the current language or current lingo, you had a unicorn in your business with your buddy uh, yeah. and, and it was worth a lot of money. So you can never have the threat that you're going to walk away from your business and just tank it so that, um, that, so that you, ha- you have that leverage that you can always walk away and do something else. If your business is worth a lot, it's really become a unicorn. That buddy of yours will continue to insist if, if that he's entitled to some um, some part of your business, and that can become very expensive for you. That happens over and over again. And so yeah. you're lucky you caught it early. I mean, I, I think you caught it early, and you were able to stop it with, with just the conversation. And hey, maybe you had that relationship with your buddy, or maybe he was more moral than than it first appeared. But could be if you had. If you had really created something of, of tremendous value and you called yourself joint venturers and, and there's nothing in writing, um, in, in many jurisdictions, you, you actually would have a real problem. I can't speak for a Nevada. I'm not a Nevada lawyer, but certainly in right. certain jurisdictions, you would have a real problem. Yeah. And that's and that's one of the things where I was having my holy shit moment. What did I do? And uh, I mean, I've been in other joint ventures and other cooperatives since then, and I always get it in writing. 
And uh, I want you to fill in the blanks for me, actually. The things that I would tend to cover are, first of all, scope, because I recognize if we're doing some sort of joint venture that's meant to mutually benefit both of us, we don't want our respective businesses included. So specifying very clearly, these are the bounds and limits of the joint venture. This is all we do together. So that was one piece of it. Another, um, of course, as I recognized, you mentioned uh, prenuptial agreements and the CEO's agreement that essentially serves as a prenup. And I recognize that what do prenups in a marriage sense usually deal with? Division of assets in the event of divorce, depending on cause of divorce. So I also learned to outline, if we decide we're not doing this anymore, how do we get out of it? So what if we do joint promotions and now we have a subscriber list based on that? What happens to the subscribers? Do we share and share alike? Does one take it and the other doesn't? What if we build a website together for it? And there's a domain name associated with it, which will have legacy and search engines, media, press releases, will need to redirect somewhere. Who gets the domain? And is, or is it actually option number three, where we both lose a domain and neither one of us can ever buy it again for a period of X number of years? This happened with a client of mine once. Uh, I'm not going to say who it is. Uh, but they're very, very well known. They're actually world famous, and uh, and characters and movies have been based on this person uh, in the screenplays. And they uh, were in a joint venture for a while, and then the joint venture dissolved. And the joint venture was actually that primary business. Now, as I understand it, and I could be incorrect here, but the way it was explained to me is when they did their business divorce, the they, they there was a domain associated with that. There was like a major, major legacy authority domain, which ranks very high in Alexa. And the agreement specified that, uh, that my clients got to keep that domain. They could continue to own it. But for X number of years, they could not host a website on it. So I remember the first several years working with that client, counting down the days until we could rehost the domain. And uh, as the moment that day came up, there was, a, there was a major rush to get all the website assets moved back under that domain. So that's another piece of firsthand experience I have with that is essentially, if you think of it from a prenup perspective, if the website is the house, then if the, the marital partnership dissolves, what happens to the house? Well, that's exactly right. You are doing now because you got burned once. Um, what you should, what every business creator should do is think how to protect themselves if things go wrong. We all hope they don't, but um, they really, you really need to. In the same way that you're doing, thinking um, what are the assets of the business, what is it likely to grow to, and who'll own them if things go wrong. There's nothing wrong with doing that. That's to protect yourself and to whoever else you're in business with. Um, just as this uh, this this um, person who you're describing, your client, yeah, um, did, and so um, you need to do that if you have any leverage at all uh, from a- any level, depend- depending on what what your situation what your situation is. Yeah. So uh, I mean, because you think about it, uh, you know, prenups are so unromantic, but in a situation where again, there's different statistics out there, but let's just use a round number: half of marriages end in divorce. Hey, I remember the day that that Supreme Court ruling came down that effectively made gay marriage legal in the United States. And I remember, I remember like 
45% of the country being excited over it, uh, 45% of the country being outraged over it. But there was this other 10% that was, who were really excited. You know who they were? Who are they? Divorce lawyers. <laughs> right. They figured more people getting married means more divorces. Uh, that is i don't do divorce law but i'm sure that was that was the case the more you allow marriage the more divorces are and listen those people go into marriage uh thinking everything's going to work out down the road and uh, and sometimes it doesn't well the same thing happens in business the same thing happens in employment uh and uh and the same thing happens even when businesses are started by family members together hey um, as, a, as, a, as a friend of mine who isn't a divorce divorce attorney told me, he said, Hey, I don't care what the hell they're saying on social media. The bottom line is gay people get divorced half the time too. That's true. I've actually yeah. known gay, gay people who've gotten divorced. So, uh-huh. uh, um, and, and you know, you're right. The divorce lawyers probably looked at that as a greater pool. Uh, I, I'm not a divorce lawyer, but I can right. imagine they're like, it's a greater pool of potential business. Right. Uh-huh. So, um, uh, but, and in that circumstance, uh, whether it's a, uh, the, the idea is still the same for in business when I call a professional prenuptial agreement. I assume that um, uh, um, um, gay marriage would have the same number and uh, of of uh, or percentage wise of professional pre or prenuptial agreements. Oh as, yeah, as do um, other marriages. And so um, the point is, what are they doing? Also, they're protecting their assets or their bit or whatever they've got before they get married. And yeah. so that would be true of joint ventures. Your scope. What you talked about scope is so important. It's absolutely right because you have to keep, you want to keep your own assets outside that scope, right? Whatever your business is that you're bringing to the joint venture, if you're bringing a business to it and the other side would want to too. And then you have to decide what your joint venture exactly going to be and and who gets the, who gets the results or the spoils of it if things go wrong. And, And again, we start out hoping that things go right. Yeah. I know of I know of uh, cases where people got married, uh, where one of them started an entrepreneurial venture and it became their livelihood, and the other half of the part the partnership, uh, the marital partnership, said for years, "Oh, I don't care about the business. That's all yours, whatever." But then the moment the divorce lawyers get involved, all of a sudden, oh yeah, that's half mine. Again, I don't do divorce law, but that that would <laughs> that that, but that actually that actually goes back to what you said about uh, when you were you know telling me about my situation with the joint venture partners. Like, oh, but even though it wasn't theirs, is it really not theirs? Yes, because you're what your joint venture situation was. Oh, so so let's step back. In again, I don't do divorce law, but right, I mean, right. I'm, I'm I'm just using that for allegorical examples, so we don't have to keep discussing divorce law. I'm going to actually bring this back to you. So, so what we were talking about with respect to your, your, your job, when you thought what your business, when you went into with your buddy, um, you had an oral agreement, but there's a couple of issues there. Uh, one is, was there a misunderstanding? Um, or two, did he just use, uh, your buddy use um, certain words that mean things, partnership, joint ventures give in many states people rights, unless it's defined in a contract. Or, um, you know, was he just sleazy and wanted to take a piece of your pie, even though you know, morally, he wasn't entitled to it. And contractually, he wasn't entitled to it. So people, unfortunately, um, not everybody, not even a majority of people, I don't want to make it out like that. But there's enough people in life who, who lie. And they will say, even though they agreed to X, they'll later say Y uh, is what they're entitled to something different, particularly if there's money involved. And that happens on the um, on the on the smallest business level, all, all the way, frankly, up to very large um, companies 
um, that are um, even the unicorns of the startup world, for example. Um, right. Often fights about who should have the equity, and there's often people stabbing each other in the back, which is why I wrote the book, because I've seen it over and over again for more than 25 years. All right. So here's something I'm really curious about. And this is in uh, in my notes, Mark Green Room conversation. Uh, you mentioned that there are ways that executives most often take get taken advantage of by their company. So what are some examples of that? The most uh, telling examples of things that happens over and over again is when an executive believes everything is going to go well um, or they are afraid to negotiate for one reason or another with their company and therefore they don't protect themselves. And I'll, I'll describe what an executive would want to be protecting. They don't protect themselves in employment. They go in thinking it's going to work out and they try very hard to make it work out. And many times it does, but the way they get taken advantage of is when it doesn't work out and they get fired or terminated with much less of a severance package or none at all, no payment when they're for, for, to transition to the next job. They often lose equity, sometimes worth millions and millions of dollars. And equity is, is stock or it's restricted stock or it's profits interest. And they often wind up on the street with no or little Cobra premium payments. When had they negotiated on day one, they had the leverage to enter into a uh, employment agreement or an offer letter which was protective of them. That's what we're calling the protective um, a professional prenuptial agreement that would have given them a lot more, a lot more uh, severance or separation pay if they got terminated, a lot more equity. Um, for example, if they get terminated, they would get a, a year worth or two years worth of accelerated vesting of that equity and certainly COBRA premium payments, among other things. There are other aspects, other things in employment that are very important to people that they could also negotiate for on day one. Right. And and who knows what you could get uh, you know, sucked into, for example. Uh, what I was immediately thinking about as you were saying that uh, was the story of John Schnatner, who was the founder of the pizza, ja- pizza chain Papa John's. And uh, many of our listeners may remember that a few years ago, um, he was forced out as the head of his own company. Uh, due to a number of issues. And I'm not going to get into um, legal speculation here, but for the way I read it, and at any rate, is there were recordings of him taking part in a diversity exercise in his company. And because he used a certain word, people creatively misinterpreted what he was actually saying. And as a result, he was branded a certain way and forced out. That's how I read it. Others may read it differently. But when you think about where we are as a society today with all this this cancel culture stuff, and if you hear the derision of my voice, it's intentional. Uh, imagine you're the CEO and you think everything's going to go well, and then somebody has a tape recorder playing, and at this day and age, you almost always have to assume that somebody's got something recording going at all times, and you make a joke. So that, that's why, I mean, these things happen, right? And in this culture, they happen even more. I don't know anything about the Papa John situation, but I can tell you the way the CEO who's going to get fired either for a reason like this, somebody sees him say something wrong on the internet, quote unquote wrong, um, is to protect himself. So imagine, imagine somebody, the board comes to him and says, you're out. And he says, why? And they say, I don't know, they heard something on the internet or, or somebody called um, uh, and, and complained. And, and, and he or she would say, OK, I think it's really dumb that you're firing me, but you know what? I'm going to go run my next company. You just pay me what's in my contract. You vest me the equity 
that's in the contract, accelerate the vesting of the equity. You give me COBRA premium payments that's in the contract for six months, three months, or a year, and, and I'll go get myself another job. Goodbye. And so uh, in the case of the entrepreneur or, or someone like uh, who has a, a company that takes an investment, I assume that's what happened with the Papa John's circumstance and I know nothing about it. Yeah. You have to know what those investors are looking at. You have to know what the pressure points are. You have to know how they take control either through documents or through board membership. So a CEO has control only as long as he has um, or she has a control of the board. The board can fire that person at any time. So um, there, and there are many documents out there that are written that hurt them and they don't even read the documents um, or they don't know what they say, particularly when taking an investment. It's absolutely critical to understand things um, like liquidation preferences, like board control, like capitalization tables. I write about all of that in my book, uh, but, but the CEOs get forced out all the time and, and worse, entrepreneurs lose their baby. And I, and I mean, their metaphorical baby, right? The yeah. creation of their company happens all the time. Somebody takes over their company, either for good reasons or bad reasons. And sometimes just to stab them in the back because they want to get more of the founder's equity, the entrepreneur's equity. They want to quote unquote, steal it back. And so they take over control of the company. Sometimes it hurts the company or drives it into bankruptcy and sometimes not. But what often happens is the unprotected founder, the unprotected entrepreneur winds up sitting on the sidelines as somebody else takes their company and does what they want with it. And sometimes they sit on the sidelines and they see this company go public or sell for a lot of money and, and they're not part of it. Um, or, uh, or sometimes just the opposite happens. Uh, uh, board takes over and they, they appoint somebody who doesn't know what they're doing and the company goes, goes bankrupt when it shouldn't otherwise have. So um, this happens a lot over and over and over again. For more than 25 years, I've seen this uh, in Silicon Valley, and I have offices in Chicagoland and, and in New York. And um, the whole point of my book is to protect people from the pain, the pain uh, of losing their metaphorical baby to someone else, unless, unless they go into a, a situation, they read my book, for example, and go into a situation where their eyes wide open. So they know they're taking the risks they're taking. And if that right. happens, and they take the risk, and somebody, and somebody forces them out, they can look themselves in the mirror and say, I was warned. I knew what I did. I took a risk and, 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 and I came up on the short end of that story uh, on, that, on that situation. And so right. that's the point is if you're going to go and why this book can help everybody, even if you don't have leverage. And I want to say a lot of people have a lot more leverage than they think also addressed in the book. But um, if you, if, wouldn't you want to know 100% of the situation you're going into and so uh, if, if things don't go wrong, at least you were you could see it coming. You could read the tea leaves. You could be suspicious. You could know what some of those documents are that might hurt you. And uh, right. that's also the point. Because, because business, you know, creating a business, um, as I'm sure you must know, is, is about risk taking. Oh, yeah. And so you, when you're doing investment and entrepreneurs building a business, part of the risk they might have to take it has to do with, who they're going into business with, the joint venture or the investor, um, the, uh, uh, the venture capitalist, the private equity principal, and, uh, and, and maybe they decide not to protect themselves. But if they do that, they should at least know what they've decided not to protect themselves against. Precise, precisely. And again, you can go into any situation, whether it's a, a position as a CEO, a joint venture partnership, starting a business, anything. And you probably wouldn't enter it unless you had a reasonable belief that things were probably going to go well. 
but unanticipated stuff comes up. You could get stabbed in the back. There could be some shift in whatever that could change all that in an instant. And when you look at it from, if we want to talk about corporations for a minute, this is my, what I'm getting out of this. And you tell me if there's something else I should be getting out of it is let's say that uh, I'm part of a board of directors of a company and there's, I'm not even going to get into any reasons why, but we recognize it'd probably be a good idea if the CEO went away. And if they had their golden parachute in place, that's what I think we're alluding to here, although we haven't used the term yet, their golden parachute in place, would it make sense for us to be able to pull the CEO aside and say, hey, look, um, we're kind of going to throw you out here, but I just want to remind you that if you resign quietly and walk away, you're still getting 50 million. You still own 23% of the company. Can we do this the easy way? What you just said is what's done many times as well, especially with a CEO or a C-suite executive who has a um, um, the uh, a protective employment agreement. Yes, it's called a golden parachute um, in, in some circles. And that happens all the time. It's the classic, we're going in another direction, the board says. They usually appoint a board officer, often the chairman of the board, um, to say to the CEO in this example, we're going in a different direction or we don't want you anymore, or they say it nicely, and it's time for you to leave. Why don't you resign? And we'll come up with a good story. That's why a lot of times when you see a CEO exit, there's a story there, because there's been a negotiation about what that story is going to be. It may not be exactly what happened, um, but it is a story to, to, to leave the company in a good light, but also to leave the CEO in a good light. And the CEO, um, with the protection, is it, almost every one of these agreements requires um, the uh, employee to sign a release as a condition to getting whatever the benefits are. So the company gets the release, they get a non-disparagement agreement, the CEO hopefully gets one that's mutual non-disparagement agreement, meaning yeah. they don't say bad things about each other. And, uh, and sometimes if in a really good transition, the chairman says, listen, I'll give you a recommendation. I'll say you did a great job for X, Y, and Z reasons, but the board wanted to go in another direction. So what you're describing is... Um, often happens, particularly at the uh, executive or senior level. Um, it actually can happen throughout a corporation with good managers because there's no reason to create conflict. It's already, it's already disheartening enough for anybody. Getting, nobody likes to get fired. doesn't matter where you are in the, in the, in the company. And so right. uh, what you've described is, is the classic resignation. And anytime you look at a company that says we're replacing the CEO, they're moving, they're moving on uh, to pursue other interests. That's a classic yeah. line. That means that the board, that usually means the board didn't want them there for, for one reason or another. And, and, uh, and so rather than have a fight or dispute, they did things the easy way. They gave the CEO whatever um, um, was in the employment agreement. Or many times they just, if there's no employment agreement, um, they give a, a separation agreement. That often happens. And I discuss that in the book. If you don't have a protective employment agreement, how to negotiate a, a back-end separation agreement. And, and, and part of that agreement will sometimes say, um, here's our story. You know, here's what we can say. Here's what you can say and so forth. Right, right. And uh, sometimes that really is in the best interest of anybody, even if there was a technically wrongdoing or something along those lines, I guess. Because if you think of it this way, if you have a scandalous CEO exit, that's going to reflect on the company. I just if I, I just want the CEO gone. I don't want to clean up their mess for five years. 
that's often what a, a board thinks. Uh, it may not be right from a, like a, a national sort of um, or a moral perspective, uh, but, but that's often what a board thinks. Protect the company. Their job is to protect the company and the shareholders. So if it's really illegal, they're going to call the they're going to call the authorities. If it's like ma- if it's like major legal, but if it's like gray area stuff or a misinterpreted phone call or some kind of media uh, thing or whatever, sometimes that's the easier way to go. And I can moralize it very easily. This company needs to survive. We have thousands of employees who depend on us for their well-being. If we make this dirty, we could tank the company and put a lot of people out of work. That means children starving, not going to college, et cetera. I don't want that. You'd be a, a great a great person to be on some board out there or multiple boards because uh, you're reflecting exactly what uh, the board members often say uh, in an exit of the kind you're describing. So protect the company, protect the shareholders. Let's have an easy exit. We don't want to make a mess. And so um, it's a form of corporate marketing, if you will, um, because uh, the company knows if things get get into the out into the public sphere, um, in the, on the internet in, in the news, it could be detrimental to the company. They'll have, they'll be able to sell less product or whatever their product is. They will be seen poorly and people won't buy as much of their yeah. services. And you know, that hurts, that hurts the employees. Cause then they have to, they go downhill and they have to start laying off people and, and so forth. So what you just described, yeah. is, I, and, I can't and, tell and you. Yeah. Exactly. And, and you know, another way of looking at that is if everybody knows what the CEO is departing to pursue other interests really means, then that can be, then uh, the board can still get the same credit for that as saying they acted in the best interests of the company. That, that's right. It's usually, uh, it's usually they got rid of that CEO right away. That's what they, that's what they, that's how they protect themselves. And they acted in the best interest of the company, they say, because they uh, make a smooth transition. Uh, and it's in everybody's interest at the company level and the stockholders' interest to have the new CEO transition without as without a whole bunch of minefields there. So right. that's that's what you're describing. That happens a lot. Um, I've seen that many many times uh, in my career. And sometimes, actually, when the CEO faces off against uh, the board or faces off against the company, there's something dysfunctional going on. Um, at least in the world of of, of, of corporate America. Yeah, so let's shift gears a little bit. We've uh, discussed um, people protecting themselves from getting taken advantage of. So although we lean sort of heavily on how a CEO enters into a protective employment agreement, I think many of our listeners can translate that either upwards or downwards to their own unique situation. So what happens if you do get taken advantage of? How can you recover from that? Uh now that's a really great question and depends on the context of how you got taken advantage of. Pick uh, one and let's have fun with it. All right. So just pick one. Um, yeah. You have um, um, gotten fired and somebody has cheated you out of, um, uh, let's say, uh, uh, some amount of commissions and some amount of stock. Yeah. And uh, sometimes the answer is you sue them. Uh, sometimes the answer is that's the cost of doing business, and you should move on to your next uh, position and not um, and and not let a, a next position or next job or next uh, creation and and say that's not going to happen to me again. I'm going to protect myself from the future from that happening. But hey, uh, you know the old story, uh, um, um, you know, fool me once, shame on you; fool me twice, shame on me. Right. So uh, that's what I mean by context dependent. I'd have to know a lot more. Um, listen, if something's really illegal. You should report that to the authorities. 
if it's somebody's doing something morally wrong, like stabbing you in the back, maybe maybe you don't have to face off against them. Maybe you do if they've stealing, stolen millions and millions of dollars of commission or of or of, or of equity or stock. So, you know, you have to go after them. But otherwise, uh, maybe it's uh, you cut your losses as people doing business. I think of it as cost of doing business and move on. So I want to say that if uh, one of the important things that's that everybody out there who's been taken advantage of should should uh, uh, take to heart uh, is that you are not alone, um, and this happens all the time, um, unfortunately. And, and people get fired. Very nice people, very wonderful people, very shrewd people, um, uh-huh. very experienced people get fired all the time. And I see that over over and over again. And the idea is, can you recreate, you know, your position? Can you go somewhere else? Can you get a, you know, change careers? Can you get a new job? And uh, if you're good at what you do and you have a lot of self-confidence, you can do that. It's always hard um, to be taken advantage of, to be fired, to be put out on the street. But you are not alone. If you if you went around and talked to people about it, you probably find you have some relative in a similar situation, a friend or, or respected colleague, because I'm here to tell you that so many people succeed. I've seen this so many times in my career. They succeed their second, their third, their fourth try, their fourth business, their fifth business. And, um, and that happens a lot. Sometimes people make millions and millions, you know, after having failed once, twice, three times on the fourth try, they get it right. And alternatively, sometimes people get it right on the first go round in entrepreneurial world, or they get the right job, or they, they, they find a company with uncapped commissions, and they, and they sell like crazy. And then they, they fail in the second and the third and the fourth time. Uh, meaning failing, they don't get the same return. So um, it's most important when you've been taken advantage of, um, listen, you're going to feel bad, but to know it, you're not alone um, and that it happens all the time. And it probably happens has happened uh, in their career to uh, your listeners, friends, the people that you know, yeah. or, 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 or uh, colleagues, um, or, or even family members. They just don't talk about it very often. Yeah, well... Uh... You have emphasized that this book that you've created, Negotiate Like a CEO, is not just for executives, but it's actually for everyone in the corporate world. And from what I'm hearing, it can also be applied to entrepreneurial ventures as well. So let's say somebody's just starting out. Let's, you know, we've spoken heavily of CEOs. Let's say it's somebody who is just starting out in a career or just starting their business, or they're at that point where they're moving from startup to revenue. Uh, how does how does everything you share help them? Well, startup to revenue is easy. They'd have to read the book because they have to know how to protect their business from being taken over by someone else, um, right. whether it's the investors, whether it's their joint venture, or whoever it is. Unless they're totally bootstrapped and, and they are the king or the queen of their business and nobody's going to ha- ever have any interest in the business, own any part of the business other than that. Um, as for new, newbie employees, new employees just out of college, for example, first of all, um, the book is helpful in, in, in multiple different ways. Uh, it explains um, things like offer letters and why the company wants to have offer letters. It explains um, what you have to look out for in the trajectory of your career. Even if you never want to be a CEO, you want to know what's going on in your employment and what to look out for, what those documents say, so that you can, um, uh, if you can't at the beginning, you can protect yourself uh, down the road. Uh, also, there are many people now who are just coming into the workforce that have a lot more leverage than they think, particularly because this is a time in, in, our, in our history, in our economy, when companies are looking to hire, right? There's, there, there, there's a shortage of workers out there. So a lot of people have a lot more leverage um, than they think. And I talk about that in the book. And uh, so you might have only a one-page offer letter or a two-page offer letter, 
But if you have some leverage, let's use coders, people who write code for software, they're in yeah. really high demand. They get paid, I think, more coming out of college now than I got paid uh, starting out as a lawyer. And oh, yeah. That, that was a while ago. But, but uh, imagine that they put in their, in their offer letter um, a one-line sentence that says, if you terminate my employment, you will accelerate the vesting of my stock options by one year, period. That protects their, let's say they're getting equity at a company and they're getting stock options, which typically vest over time, right? Every year or every month, you get a right to more and more of them. So if they get fired uh, in the first year or two, or two years or any time, they can, they, can, they can stick out their hand and say, even at a beginning level, listen, um, I think it's bad you're, you're firing me. I'm really upset, but um, accelerate the vesting of, of my stock options for one year, just like it says in the one line sentence in that in the contract um, that, that I signed um, because you wanted to hire me and I wasn't going to come to work for you because I had other choices out there. And, and that's what I mean uh, by protecting yourself and if you have any leverage at all, even when you start out. And I might say also the book has multiple of those stories I was talking about and, and, uh, uh, and multi multiple times I talk about in the book I, uh, is, is really only for um, new employees and mid-level employees at companies um, um, and, and how to protect themselves and what to, to look out for and the tea leaves and so forth. And I, I use as an example, um, a story, I, one of the stories I wrote, which is about a, a performance improvement plan. And the character in the story is a mid-level manager who gets a performance improvement plan, which um, in the world of, of, of corporate America is often a kiss of employment death. It's being done not to help the person, in, uh, the employee improve. Some companies, it, they do do that. But in a lot of companies, it's to protect the company from getting sued. And, uh, and what happens, what the natural inclination is. Many people think if they work really, really hard, they'll overcome a performance improvement plan. And, and there's a story about that with real, you know, not real characters, but characters I made up when I was at the Pete's Coffee. But it's, but it's a situation that happens over and over again. And there are um, nice stories, upside stories about how a mid-level managers, new employees, um, what they have to look out for, for example, in the world of equity and how they do really well. Um, and, uh, and they, and they uh, sometimes uh, are, do financially better than their parents did you know, over their lifetime. And, and, and these new employees do better in, in one year or two years in terms of, of, of growing their wealth. So the book has a lot of things in it. Um, it has it has a, a, a really uh, one chapter has a series of these stories that that that, that same character reappears. Um, you know, you write in different ways, and the, the story is called Aaron. And like the next story is Aaron one, Aaron two, Aaron three, and it's basically a um, story about a character who stood up for um, um, an individual, and uh, they were discriminated against because the individual was a protected class. And in the story, and so they got fired because they stood up for the the uh, the the individual who's a, in a protected class, and uh, and, and uh, they got fired as a result. And this is a uh, a series of conversations that the um, mythical character and the mythical lawyer are having by text, actually, about how the mythical character, who happens to be a female here, should negotiate with the CEO who just fired her or had the company fire her because. The reason they got, she got fired is because when she re, when she stood up for the for the for the for the um, um, discriminated against individual and said this is wrong, she did so against the executive vice 
vice president of worldwide sales, another character in the story who had so much power at the company because um, that, that EVP was responsible for the company's revenue, but the company felt they couldn't fire the EVP. So uh, that's not the way it's supposed to work. It's not the way the law is written, but practically this happens sometimes. And the story is about how this mid-level manager was able to negotiate a wonderful back-end separation agreement um, and how uh, uh, the, this character, she used her leverage. Um, and the leverage in this circumstance was, you did wrong company, um, you broke the law, and I'm going to sue you for it, and, and so forth. And so the company essentially in this story pays her off. Um, and this happens, you know, not, not so frequently, but it does happen. And it's a, it happened enough in my career, these kinds of repeat events um, where companies sort of do the wrong thing, as the law says, and, and they pay off essentially um, an employee um, can be all the way up to the C-suite level, but can be more junior employee. They pay them off because they don't want to have, um, you know, a lawsuit out there, which they're going to come out on the short end of. And they know that in the beginning. Um, so, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I mean, I work for a company that was so obsessed with organizational charts that uh, somebody actually had my supervisor tell me that me questioning things was not only wrong, but evil. And if there was ever a situation where somebody with a director title said the earth was flat and I tried and I and I tried to correct them, that I should not only apologize for thinking the earth could possibly round, be round, but go out of my way, my way to acknowledge how right they are by saying the earth is flat. And uh, I, I was at, it was actually a direction sent from the C-suite to tell me that. So yeah, I'm familiar with the abuse. So, so in that circumstance, if you had come to me, uh, probably <laughs> one of my first responses would have been, and there's a story about it. I even wrote a story yeah. about it because it happens all the time. You know yeah. what I would say to you? What do you think I would say to you? Uh, this would be the time for me to get a, some sort of agreement in order, I would think. Yeah, before, before that, I would say to you exactly what the title of one of these stories is, because it happens again. I'd say, why do you want to work there? And, the, and, and you know what? Uh, that's actually where I was going to go next in our time that's left. I mean, because you've told the story of the person who um, called out the EVP for wrongdoing, and uh, they took care of it by essentially paying the employee off to go quietly. Well, um, think of it th Think of it this way. I mean, uh, going back to why CEOs have these protective agreements is when you get to that level of responsibility, it's sometimes not as easy to fire somebody at that level, no matter what kind of shithead they are, than uh, it is somebody who works in the back of the accounting office, for instance. The reason being is that... Uh, Top-level people tend to have public reputations, and if something happens to their public reputations, like uh, like if word about that EVP went, got out, or let's say I happen to have a tape recorder, and I happen to be around where uh, the chief ex-officer was saying to the other chief ex-officer, hey, you know what, we're going to go to Adam's supervisor and have him push Adam around by uh, with this whole, <laughs> check out this thing about the flat earth thing. Let's say I had, let's say I had tape recorded that. Let's say a friend of mine had had their tape recorder running while that conversation was going on and they slipped me a copy. Well, <laughs> and imagine, and imagine in today's world with the dissemination of, or, or the proliferation of information dissemination through the democratization via social media, I could create that news in a minute. 
Like they could, they could tell me that I have to apologize for saying the world is round. If somebody higher on the org chart says it's, it's flat and uh, okay, that happens at two 30. So uh, my shift over is over at four 30 by six 30. I have an optimized website up around that. And by eight 30, um, I'm getting uh, a million views on my TikTok video about it. Okay. Well, you, you've just, uh, You've just uh, um, said a lot of different things, in yeah. your, but I have to tell you, the first thing uh, that, that I have to tell you is you have to be very careful. In some states, it's illegal to make a secret recording. So if you're in California and you do well, that. Uh, you know you what? Can... I'm, I'm aware. I'm aware of that. And I'm uh, and, uh, and this is where my question for you is. Um, I'm aware that there are some states that are one way recording states, some states that are two way recording states. I know there are different laws depending on ju- different jurisdictions um, on what is considered private property. Uh, we could go on about this. This is probably the topic of a completely separate interview. If I get enough demand for it, I might even have you back on this. But let me ask you this. Once the bird's out of the cage, yeah, you can sue me. You can try and get money out of me. And if I don't have the money to pay, well, that's great. You can you can get a default judgment and I'll just laugh at you. Okay, so that's true. But in certain states, you can go to jail for doing that. So okay. uh, you, have be, you have to be careful. Like in California, it's a criminal offense, not just a civil offense. So interesting. Uh, yeah. But I take what, what you're trying to get at is it's a bit a bit that but what I just described can happen. And it's not necessarily illegal everywhere. That that's true. What you described mm-hmm. can happen. And yep. it can happen in a way, actually, that um, there's no issue with recordings. But um, it, it's and, 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 and what if it happened in a way that my fingerprints were nowhere near it and so nobody that, knows who leaked it in this day and age companies are very depending on the company some companies just don't care right and but yeah. a lot of companies are very sensitive to uh the power of of me of, of, of multimedia of the power mm-hmm. of the internet um the power of tiktok the power of um instagram and so forth uh social media uh, it depends on the company, depends on the people running the company. There are there are companies out there that have entire marketing teams that are to try to countermand the bad things that are said about them on, on, on social media. Yeah, so, that's not new. And what you're saying is sometimes they'll pay off an employee so they don't have that problem. And, and quite frankly, sometimes the employee wants to be paid off and doesn't want to go out and do what you just described. Which they'd is why rather, I brought that up. Yeah, that's why I brought that up. What's well, sorry, say that again? Yeah, that's why I brought that up. Some people just may want to go quietly because in the case of that woman who uh, caught the wrongdoing by the EVP, uh, even if that was resolved in her favor, would she really want to keep working there? I wouldn't because, exactly. because now she's got a target on her back. So what, if I, so what if a friend of mine had caught that recording and slipped me a copy of it and I went to, whether it was the marketing department or the legal department, I said, you know, um, I was surfing the internet here on my break using my personal device outside the building. And there's this thing online. Listen to this. Hey, isn't that the CFO of this company talking about me? They may want to pay me to pack my stuff and leave that day. They may, they may want to fire the CFO as well. I don't know what, I don't know what's on the recording. You, 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 you never, you never know the situation I think is one of the points we make here. It's everything's a situation. Exactly. It's all, everything's context dependent, but you are describing a kind of negotiation that happens not infrequently where companies, you know, pay off the atoms of the world um, who, who have this, who have this uh, potential leverage over them. Um, In this case, marketing, a kind of marketing leverage. Sometimes they turn around 
and, 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 and fire the other guy, though. In this case, the CFO is your example. Sometimes they fire both people. So uh, you just have to be ready in any, in any kind of negotiation like this. You'd have to be think out your decision tree. What happens if the other side does A? What happens if they do B? How am I going to react and so forth? So without the specifics, uh, you know, I, I couldn't comment exactly. other, than to say, other than to say it's context dependent. And sometimes you see companies um, giving separation agreements for those kinds of situations. Sometimes they say no way. And sometimes it's the personality of the people in control. Um, and, you know, companies um, make good decisions and they make bad decisions. And sometimes they make economically irrational decisions and get hurt as a result. So remember, the people making the decisions, uh, the companies making the decisions are just are just people. And so right. um, it often depends on who your manager is, what kind of experience they have, what they're worried about, what their career, where they want to go in their career and, and, and so forth. Or in the case of a C-suite level, what the board is going to think, uh, you know, who might get fired as a result, um, yeah. what is their product, what's the issue with investors and so forth. Exactly. So, and I think this will be a great way to wrap up here is what I'm seeing through this, uh, some of the challenge questions you asked me, some of the pitfalls in my own thinking that you gave me. Now, there was no, just to be clear for any of our listeners who may be putting two and two together, there was no tape of anybody in the C-suite saying, ha, let's uh, let's really show Adam who's boss here or anything like that. And, that, and actually, uh, that came from somebody in director level in another department um, who had more political leverage over my director level person than you, you see where that's going. Uh, but all the same, because I, I eventually did an entire trace route and found out where it came from. And I actually got back at that other person after I left the job. But that's another story. Uh, but uh, but yeah, the bottom line, but the, but the bottom line here is even in just my clarification there, you're dealing with people of different skill sets, different interests, different things that matter to them, different ways of viewing with the world. Everything's a situation. So your ability to negotiate, this is what I'm getting out of this, is impacted to a degree by who you're negotiating with. And based on what you can learn, you may have more power than you think. That's 100% true. And I might say in the fact pattern you've given and something I discuss in the book, uh, there's often the case that the subordinate, and it could be on any level, who's being forced out, who's being mistreated, who's being ignored, uh, basically the tea leaves, the message is being sent um, often by some passive aggressive boss or a boss that's uh, afraid to actually do a firing. Yeah, I've seen a lot of that. We don't, it happens all the time. We don't want you there. I don't want you in my department. I don't want you here anymore. And, and, and that goes on. And that person who suffers, who's the employee, the subordinate happens all the time because they try to make it work. It doesn't work. And sometimes you just can't make it work. But sometimes Rather than going with all the things that you described, you just go into the boss. I talk about it in the book. And you have to say a certain number of things like, I want to be here forever. I love this company. Um, uh -huh. But, but you know, you listen, I, don't, I know you don't want me here anymore. And I'll go quietly if you give me a professional separation agreement. That's on the back end because the person doesn't have a, an employment agreement. Yeah. Um, or if they have an employment agreement, they say, just pay me what's in the employment agreement. I know you don't want me here. I love this company. But... Um, you're the boss. So give me a professional um, back end separation agreement and I'll go quietly. And that often what happens is the boss who's done all this passive aggressive stuff and made the subordinates life miserable, um, breathes a sigh of relief, right? Because they didn't know how to get rid of this person they were forcing out. They didn't have the, 
the, the, the, the strength or the organizational backing to do it or any, any moral reason to do it. And they breathe a sigh of relief and they say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll either give you a separation agreement or I'll get HR to send you one. And then there's a negotiation on the back end. So that happens and allows for a smooth transition very often. Um, the subordinate who's been forced out you know, has a soft landing and, uh, and this happens at all levels of a company, all the way from the newbie employee, the first year employee, all the way up to the C-suite level. And the, the boss, whether they're good or bad, and often they're not the best boss of all time, um, you know, they breathe this sigh of relief because they, they, in their own mind, don't have to worry about trying to get rid of this uh, subordinate that they don't like. And this happens so much so, and so many times I've seen in my career, that it would be economically irrational to do the firing of the subordinate, right? Um, and so, uh, in other words, if the shareholders could vote, they'd vote that there'd be no firing, there would be no separation. Yeah. Um, but 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 that, that the shareholders don't get to vote, and you have people, and people are different. Listen, there are some people out there, uh, managers who do f- fire subordinates who are very successful because they're afraid that subordinate's going to take their position someday and make them look bad, and so or force them out. Or as a subordinate, just such a good job that they make them look bad. There are people out there that that'll then force a firing of the subordinate. When obviously, if the shareholders could vote, they wouldn't want that to happen. They'd want the better employee to be there. But in organizational structures, that doesn't always happen. And sometimes the best way to deal with it, and really, I talk about this book in a number of different different ways, and I have a story about it, is to go to the boss and say it's context dependent again, but to say, please give me a, a professional. Uh, separation agreement, and I'll, and I'll go quietly and, and and get another job. Boy, I could have. I, I not only myself, but a lot of people I know would have had years of their lives given back to them if they had just known you then. You know, I I I can think of one situation in particular where I would have loved to have known what you just described. And why? Because I know it's one of the reasons I wrote the book and it, it avoids in this circumstance, the pain, the amount of pain that it, it, it would have avoided, avoided, avoids or caught, you know, the, the relief for the for the subordinate here who's asking for a separation agreement, um, uh, just a professional one on the back end and leaves. And that can really happen um, and, and give a, a nice runway to the next job or the next career, or wherever the person is going. Um, the pain of, of, of employment, which is so much a part of us, our careers, uh, uh, gets caused by bosses who mistreat us, uh, who, who f- try to force us out. And um, a lot of that pain can be avoided. Listen, nobody wants to be in that circumstance. Um, don't get me wrong. But so much pain can be avoided. And, and so many good things can happen as a result. And like you were saying, um, months, days, months, years of your life can be given back to employees uh, if they do something as simple as what I just described in the right yeah. context with the right fact pattern and the right boss. Right, right. And I can, I can, I can tell you, and, and we do have to end here because we're actually a little bit over time, but I'm so excited about this topic is let's say I was the boss or you were the boss and we had somebody who was a subordinate who, for whatever reason, uh, we just didn't want them there but we couldn't exactly fire them because they weren't actually doing anything wrong. Uh, Even if they had gone into that mode of printing out a copy of the job description, making sure they followed it to the letter and not a minute more and no overtime and no extras. So they were basically just already watching the clock with their bags packed, but we want them to go, but they're just not moving. Imagine if uh, that subordinate came to us and it's like, 
Okay, now we don't have to manufacture a reason for firing. We don't have to push anything to a head. Uh, and I can get somebody else in this position who I may work better with. Okay, uh, I wonder if HR can have that agreement drawn up, drawn up for me for four o'clock and we can get this done. That what you just described is what many um, managers, uh, uh, bosses, are, are thinking, and they're waiting, yeah. waiting for that to happen. And and think about it: if it was you, or if it was you, wouldn't you feel just better? You 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 manage that person out. It's you like it's it. like I really don't want them here. I've been trying to drop hints that I don't mind if they start taking time off to interview with other companies because I kind of want them to leave. I can't come out and say this for legal reasons, but I wish they would get serious about their career and their next move out of my department. But I can't say that because I could, that could reflect it back on me, but now they're just going to come do it. Okay. I will, I will go down to HR myself and see who's available to type this bad boy up right now. And can we add another $5,000 to get it done by the end of the day? Yes, that's yeah. often what managers think. And uh, again, they're not allowed to do uh, force people out for illegal reasons, uh, discriminatory reasons. But yep. but you're you're uh, uh, many states. Most states are at will states, and uh, you can force somebody out for that's not an illegal reason. And uh, it often happens exactly like you described. The manager in that circumstance goes to HR and asks for more money or for whatever it is that's important, more cobra payments or equity or something to 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 so that the employee becomes an ex-employee faster. And yeah. I have to say, if you're over 40, there, there's no way that it's going to happen that day. The separation agreement will be given that day, but because of the uh, release that's going to be in there, it's going to require at least a seven-day, uh, 21 days to consider um, to consider and at least a seven-day revocation period. Um, yeah. That has to do with the Federal um, um, Age Discrimination Act. Uh, but it could happen on that same day if the person's under 40, depending on what state well, you're in. Well, shoot, my worst case scenario is in a month, my problem's over. <laughs> <laughs> and then in a month, in the grand scheme of things, a month ain't nothing. So here's what I want to do. I want to tell everybody of our listeners, I've already bought this book for myself. Uh, go to www.negotiatelikeaceo.org. That's negotiatelikeaceo.org. Get a copy of Negotiate Like a CEO. This is Jotham Stein's book. You can also check out his, his own website at www.jotham.com. Uh, we let this episode run a little bit over because this is something that I'm just so brilliant and passionate about myself. And I saw that in Jotham and I wanted to make sure that our listeners really got a full experience here. So thank you so much, Jotham Stein, for being with us today. It's been an honor and, oh my goodness, an education. Thank you very much, Adam, for having me on your balcony. I really appreciate it and, and enjoyed the conversation. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.